what if I told you that I was not just an ordinary college professor? What if I told you that I wasn't just an average, ordinary husband and father? What if I told you I wasn't just an average Eltonian? What if I was actually the long-lost final member of Eastern European royalty and the heir of an incredible, long-lost hidden fortune? Would you believe me? Well, have you always known this? You've been holding out on us? When did you find this out, you might say? Well, I got this email the other day <laughs> from a lawyer in Nigeria. <laughs> and he, he told me that he was the custodian of this long-lost fortune and that he had finally tracked down its rightful heir, me. And all I needed to do was to send him my bank account information and a $5,000 fee because the corrupt system, he needs to recover his own expenses. And then he could transfer hundreds of millions of euros to my account and I could reclaim what was rightfully mine. Now do you believe me? <laughs> what if I told you that I just, I always knew that somehow I was royalty? Or that when I read the email, it just felt right? Or that I've never had such a sense of peace and harmony in my life since believing that I was Royalty. Now, do you believe me? Well, obviously, I hope that you would not. Clearly, we all know these kinds of emails are scams. Neither you nor I are actually Eastern European royalty or heir of any royal fortune. And obviously, anyone who puts their trust in such claims clearly is making a huge mistake. But is the claim that I, just this random guy in Elkham, Virginia, and secretly Eastern European royalty, is that any less reasonable than the claim that a carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago in the backwaters of the Roman Empire was actually God? If you didn't grow up in a Christian home or haven't spent decades in a Christian church, it probably seems just as unreasonable. Right? To an outsider, to someone who hasn't always heard that, how much more reasonable does that seem? To them, many would say, the only way you could conclude that this carpenter from the middle of nowhere 2,000 years ago was God was the same way that the person believes the Nigerian lawyer, which is hope and blind faith. But is that right? Or... Is there reason to believe that Jesus is God? To break this down a little bit more, let's, let's think about what might seem obvious, which is how do we know I'm not actually European royalty? Well, there's kind of two pieces to this. So first, what are the chances that there actually is a hidden Eastern European royal fortune out there to be found? Right After the fall of all of the, the royal families in that part of the world, uh, 19th, early 20th century, after Nazi, Nazi occupation of Eastern Europe, after communist occupation of Eastern Europe, after the free market emerges, fortune hunters trying to reclaim what was left, what are the chances that after all of that, there's still something out there even to be found? Well, it's pretty unlikely, right? So there's good general background reason to be very skeptical of the idea that there even is such a fortune. And second, even if there were such a fortune out there, what are the chances that I specifically 
random dude in Elkton, Virginia, is the rightful heir. Well, my background doesn't even fit right, right? I'm not even Eastern European. We'd have thought that was a requirement, right? <laughs> What's more, we know that there are all kinds of fraudulent inheritance claims out there, and the email I got is otherwise indistinguishable from all of those other fraudulent claims. So for that general reason, and for all those specific reasons, there's good reason to conclude, of course, the obvious, that I'm not Eastern European royalty. But what about the claim that Jesus is God? Is that any different? I want to propose to you today that unlike the claim that I'm Eastern European royalty, there is reason to believe that Jesus is God. There is both general reason to expect that somewhere in human history, God would become a human being. And second, there are specific reasons for thinking that Jesus in particular is the only viable candidate for God becoming a human being. And then finally, I want to explore some of the implications of this. Thus, ultimately, believing that Jesus is God is not a desperate act of blind faith, but there actually is reason to believe that God became one of us. So let's start at the beginning. Lots of people out there would be prepared to say, yeah, there's probably a God. There's probably a higher power, and the higher power is probably good. But there's no way that a human being would be that God become a human being. Well, let's think about that. I want to propose to you that there's actually good reason to think that if God exists, God would become a human being at some point. Well, let's start. Most people are prepared to say that if God exists, God would be a loving being, be very powerful, know a whole lot. Usually we talk about these, if we're using theology terms, about being God being omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect, or omnibelevolent. God obviously desires perfection, including perfect relationship with us as human beings. Now, that all sounds really simple. Yeah, God loves us, God wants a relationship with us. But have you ever thought about what that actually would look like? Right? A perfect relationship isn't particularly easy to find, as most of us know. Not just anything counts as a significant, loving relationship. There are certain requirements that have to be met. And one of those, I think we could describe as perhaps mutual identification. Now, it sounds real fancy, so what do I mean here? Well, all of us here have some sort of relationship together, in part because we have embraced and experienced some of the specific details of each other's lives. On the simplest terms, we all go to the same church, right? We live in Elkton, right? Many of us uh, have struggled with flooding basements, right? We have way too much grass to mow, right? We have these sort of even very mundane details that we share together, and as a result, we are brought together and we identify with each other. Apart from that sort of thing, you can't really reasonably say that you have a loving relationship with someone. Let me take a different example. Take the person with whom, whoever that is, you feel you have the closest relationship with. Let's imagine it's, it's, it's your best friend, or it's, it's your spouse, or perhaps a, a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child. But whoever it is, think about this person. This is whom I have this really good, loving relationship with. Now imagine that neither of you know anything about each other's uh, hobbies, or outside interests. Right? You don't know anything about 
what that person really, really likes, or they don't really know much about what you, you really like, right? So whether it's sports or music, travel or theater, art or firearms, strategy games, movie, television, whatever it is, you like, they don't know anything about it, and what they like, you know nothing about. And it's not this, this you don't know it, but you've, you've never done it yourself, and you have no interest in doing it yourself. Wouldn't most of us say, what kind of relationship is this? Right? It, it, it's not that you have to take on the interests, the exact same interests, and be the same as the person you're in the relationship with. But how can you have a relationship with them without ever having experienced any of those things at all, even just for the sake of knowing the other person? Isn't that what, would most of us raise some red flags about the relationship, saying, well, wait a minute, this is really important to you, but they spend no time in it, and this is really important to them, and you spend no time in it. Isn't that a little bit of a, of a problem? Mutual identification is part of what brings us together in relationships. Now, there's a problem here, right? While this seems pretty straightforward to do with other human beings, and we, we do this regularly, right? I mean, this is why I watch The Bachelor with my wife. Amongst other things, right? We all, we all do this. She, she does stuff with me. I do stuff with her. We all, this is why we do this. But here's the problem. What about God and us? How do we experience God's life? How does God experience our lives? Now, obviously, there's limitations to this idea of mutual identification. So, for instance, a lawyer presumably isn't obligated to go out, commit a crime, get arrested, go to jail just to see what it's like for his or her clients, right? So obviously there's some, some moral limits, but presumably the lawyer should try to understand that, right? Whether it's going, seeing what it's like for someone who is arrested, who is on trial, right? But there are obviously some limits. Nonetheless, with God and us as human beings... Right, we have some idea of what it is to think, and God thinks, or feel, and God feels, but the creator of the universe, the omniscient, the omnipotent, that's a little hard for us to identify with. Similarly, even though God knows everything about us, that doesn't necessarily mean that he identifies with us. You say, well, wait a minute, how, how does that make sense? Well, do I know what it's like to be pregnant? Right, we have two children. Right? In both cases, I was there at the beginning of the pregnancy. And I was there at the end and in the aftermath and the longer aftermath. <laughs> both times, we took a prepared childbirth class, 18 hours, actually, of prepared childbirth classes. Both times, I read extensively about pregnancy and childbirth. Both times, right? I was her prepared childbirth coach both times. Right? So... I learned a fair amount of stuff about it, but does that mean I know what it was like? Imagine if I quit my job and went to medical school and spent the rest of my life studying the process of pregnancy and childbirth and became not just an OBGYN, but a literally a professor of it at the best universities in the world. Would that mean that I knew what it was like to be pregnant? 
Well, no, there's still an element that'd be missing, which is the first-person experience of it yourself. And so even though we know that God is supposed to know everything, that's knowing all of the facts, knows everything that's true, but that's not the same as experiencing it firsthand. So as a result, we've got a problem. Not just can we, we have trouble identifying with God, but there's a little bit of a barrier to him fully identifying with us. But there is a solution. Christianity proposes the solution, which is God, at some point in history, becomes a human being so that he can engage in this mutual identification with us. He can identify with us. We can identify with him. Christians call this the incarnation, taking on flesh. Now, a couple of clarifications here. We could spend a long time talking about the the incarnation, so I'm just going to reserve myself to just two quick clarifications. The first one is that when God becomes a human being, he's not abandoning being God. So this isn't uh, subtraction. This isn't substitution. He's, and this is sort of the theological concept, right? He's adding a second nature, right? So the the old, and this goes into the, the creeds that we recite after the sermon, right? That Jesus had two natures. He was both divine and human. That he took on this second nature. Now we could get, again, we could give a long explanation of what this looks like. The real quick version is, the concept is that God chooses to restrain his consciousness to go through a physical body and use that as the means by which he's interacting with the world, right? Much like we do. And there's, you could give a longer discussion about that. But it's not a matter of giving up divinity. It's about adding on humanity. Second clarification, and this is one that some Christians sometimes miss out on, which is that this is not a temporary thing. This wasn't just 33 years and I'm done. This is permanent. Right? So other religions, we'll get to this in a moment, talk about God having appearances temporarily as a human being. Christianity holds that God permanently takes on human nature. Right? This is not just, I did this for a while and I went back. This is forever. It's important to keep that in mind. God is forever God and man. So because it is possible for God to do this, and it is desirable for God to do this, if we believe in a loving God, there's reason to expect that God would in fact become one of us. There's reason to believe that at some point in human history, God would become a human being so that we could know him better and that he could know us better. But what would it look like for God to become a human being? And how would we know that he he did it? We have this sort of general idea. How how would we know what had actually happened? What What would it look like? Whenever you explore the possibility of Jesus being God, you have to do it against the background of we've got reason to think God would want to do this in the first place. Right? Sometimes Christians get themselves in trouble because they, they want to look just at Jesus and say, well, clearly he must be God, but without that background. So against the background of we expect that God would do this, then we look at Jesus' life and see, does this look like what we would expect God as a human being to be? So first, let's get the obvious thing out of the way, and, and we see it in the passage that, that Kevin read this morning, which is that Jesus did, in fact, claim to be God, right? So sometimes you'll be in a discussion with someone, or, or people will be saying, hey, you know, Jesus was a nice guy, he had some cool things to say, but he never said he was God. Well, reread 
the passages that Kevin read this morning, pretty clear. I'll reread the second one. Uh, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. Now, that right there doesn't sound like, hey, I'm just a good teacher, right? I mean, I've never said to my students, I will give you eternal life. Right? I might say, hey, you know, I have some useful strategic advice that might be helpful for you in your life. And they will never perish. Again, that, that sounds pretty bold, not your normal, just kind of average, good teacher type stuff. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So in case you don't know, right, that appeared in both passages. The punishment at that time within the Jewish culture for blasphemy was immediate execution by being stoned to death, right? Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God pretty clear. Most major religious figures don't ever at any point claim that they're God, right? Zoroaster, even Moses, right? Muhammad, Siddhartha, who later becomes Buddha, none of them ever claim to be God, right? So that in itself sets Jesus apart. But he's not the only religious leader that claimed to be God. There have been others. They exist in basically, you could put all of the people who claim to be God in human history into basically four categories. The first category is the category of people who basically said they were God, but so is everybody else. Right? So this would be like the Hindu philosopher Shankara, right, who held that the universe, this is some versions of Hinduism, right, that the universe is essentially divine and we're all part of the universe. Therefore, by extension, we all to some extent are God. Well, that's obviously very different than what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is claiming that there's one God distinct from the universe, and I'm it. Second category, also a number of Eastern religions, which is that people said, um, like Krishna in the Hindu tradition, that there are many appearances of God, that he was one of many. Of course, again, this isn't Jesus. He's saying the one and only singular instance of person being God. The third category we can think of is folks like uh, Jim Jones or David Koresh or others that we might label as false prophets who claim to be God and then use that claim as a pretext to exploit other people. Very often it was calling people to violence or uh, using it as a pretext for abuse of women and children. This is not the case with Jesus. So when you look at all of the people who claim to be God, you can typically categorize them as either the ones who are saying everybody is God, I'm one of many appearances of God, or I'm God and then they use that in a way to exploit other people. And then there's this fourth category, Jesus, and he's really the only one that's in that camp. That's what we would expect to see if God actually became a human being. We would expect it would be clear. And we would expect that this, obviously, would be combined with moral behavior that was good. Second thing to consider is that if God became a human being, we would expect God to do this in a reasonable time and place. It wouldn't make a lot of sense for God to become a human being in a very isolated part of the world, live his life, be done, and that place had no interaction with the rest of the world, and the rest of humanity never heard about it. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. 
or to do it in a context where there was no way for people to keep a record of it, right? where it was just people's memory. It wasn't language and the ability to write. Jesus, of course, is born into the Roman Empire in the first century. For those of you who've forgotten your uh, ancient European history, the Roman Empire was pretty vast for its time. Right? It expanded not just Europe, but Asia, right? including Turkey and the Middle East, North Africa, right? So it stretches across three continents. Uh, depending on what estimates you look at, it was between 25 and 35% of the entire world's population. They were all united in speaking Greek, back from the Greek Empire. And Rome, of course, was famous for its infrastructure or its building of roads. There's over 250,000 miles of roads that they built in that place, making all of it very accessible Again, given you know, no cars and planes, but very accessible given the time. They further had established trade routes to places like India, which also had a pretty sizable population, between 10 and 20% of the world's population. And there was still a little bit of legacy, going back to Alexander the Great, of Greek there as well. So theoretically, you have between you know, 45 and 55% of the entire world's population readily accessible if Jesus is born into the Roman Empire. You would have to go a long time further in history to find that degree of accessibility or to get beyond it. Arguably, you'd have to go to 14th, 15th century before more of the world was readily accessible. And even in that case, it wouldn't have been united with so much common language. Thus, the time and place of Jesus' birth was a really good one to ensure the preservation and spread of his message. And even many, many secular historians have been shocked at how quickly Christianity spreads and without violence. Now, obviously, we know from history later on, right, things, things take a darker turn, but for the first 300 years or more of Christian, Christian's history, right, it is spread peacefully like wildfire which shows this would have been a reasonable time to send your messenger, right? that the world was right. Yes, obviously, today we think, hey, well, if God showed up now, it'd be broadcast live you know, via YouTube all around the world. Everyone would see it. But, of course, that's 2,000 years later. Think of all of the human beings that, that would have missed out on the message. So the goal, or a goal, is to come at a time where you can reach as many people as possible and have the message preserved and transferred throughout all later periods of history. Third thing to think about is this. If God's going to go through all the trouble to become a human being, for us to increase our understanding of him, then we ought to really learn something from what he does. I mean, it sounds obvious, but we ought to see something in Jesus' life that really stuns us, shocks us or upends our expectations about what God would be like. Otherwise, what's the point of doing it, right? If it's basically, yeah, that's pretty much what we thought, well then, you know, that doesn't really add anything. So what do we see in Jesus' life? Well, first let's think about our expectations. Most of us think, right, if God showed up, God would just show up and Shout out, I'm God. Anyone who opposes him would just get blasted, and everyone else would just bow and say, yep, you're God, you're in charge. You say, no, I don't expect that. Well, let me 
question a little bit. How often have you, in moments of frustration, said, if God would just show himself to me, I'd believe it? Or if God would just tell me what to do, that would resolve all doubt, and I would just do it. That's the expectation that God comes dramatically and that we completely and automatically follow. Jesus' life is radically contradictory of that. Jesus comes, and there are some dramatic moments, but overall, Jesus comes in incredible humility. And we almost universally reject it. Right? Jesus has a public life of three years, and then he's murdered by basically everyone complicit in it. And the handful of people who are not, they abandon him. Think about that, right? This is a huge shock to what we would expect. We expect God shows up, and we accept it. Instead, according to Jesus, God shows up. Three years, we kill him. There's tremendous humility in Jesus' coming as well, not what we expected. A couple weeks ago, uh, Kevin brought up the common claim that many skeptics raise today of the universe is so massive and Earth is such a tiny speck by comparison to that universe that we don't even have a good metaphor to describe how small and seemingly insignificant Earth is by comparison to the rest of the physical universe. To call the Earth a random speck is actually a little bit of an exaggeration. In the same way, when you think about the beginning of life, right? I don't know what it's like to be pregnant, but I know it starts out like this, right? Essentially, another random speck. Jesus becomes, right, God becomes a random speck on a random speck. Pretty dramatic, not what we expect. Not what we would think it would mean for God to show up. If you look in more details at the story of Jesus' birth, you see that there's a, a forerunner, a, a prophet who announces he's about to be born, who we call, eventually call John the Baptist. John the Baptist is born to the family of high priests. He's born into a family of privilege. Jesus is born into a family of just average people. Not what we would expect. And he spends much of his early life, we don't even know anything about it. It was so ordinary, otherwise ordinary, nothing is really written about it. Right? assumption is, well, he lived a normal life of a carpenter. And then he begins his ministry. There's some dramatic moments. There's some puzzling moments. And then we murder him. Three years. Not what you would have thought God would have done. But on the other hand, if God's going to go through the effort to become a human being, it ought to be to show us something dramatic. Show us what it means to be humble, and to show us that ordinary human existence is a whole lot more meaningful than we would have thought. That it's not size and scale, it's not power and prominence that matters most, it's just people. Pretty dramatic message. So if we've seen that in general there's reason to expect that God would become a human being, and we see a few details of Jesus' life that fit what we would imagine it would look like if God became a human being, that he claimed to be God in this rather unique way, his time and place made sense, and we actually learned something pretty dramatic from looking at him. Let's ponder some of the implications of this. 
passage that was read earlier from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Read that. He identifies with us. He's been through it. What's the implication of that? Is it just, hey, that's cool, that's neat? No, there's there's a consequence. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a help of time of need. Have you ever wondered, why does God do what God does? Have you ever found yourself saying, I just don't understand God. I mean, I understand the idea. I can give you a good definition. Believe that God exists, but I just don't get God. God has given us a strategy to understand him. And it's real simple. Look at Jesus. Now, that sounds like a cheesy Sunday school answer, right? But it's not. Because literally, Jesus is God. Thus, what Jesus thinks, what Jesus feels, how Jesus responds, that's God thinking, God feeling, God responding. So when you read the accounts of Jesus' life and his reactions to things, you are seeing God's reactions to things. This is meant to give us an insight to how we can know God better. To flip it around, have you ever wondered or felt that God didn't understand you or didn't appreciate your situation, didn't see your struggle, didn't feel it? Well, he has a strategy to know you. Right? Yes, he's omniscient, so he knows all the facts already, but he has another strategy, which is to look at you through Jesus and through how Jesus experienced human life and how he continues to. He looks at us through Jesus and his experiences. Right? Jesus has been there. Right? It's one thing to create a universe. Right? Some people have a view of God where God creates the universe and then basically plays this big cosmic game of chess with himself, with all of our life, moving stuff around, and oh, isn't that fun, and oh, oh they had a war, oh, blah, blah, blah. No, he created the world, and then he entered it and permanently linked himself to it forever. That's a very different vision of the world. Why is Jesus so central to Christianity? Some some people wonder, well, you know, I like the idea of God. I like the idea of believing in God. But why do I have to go through Jesus? Well, if everything we've said today is true, it's because Jesus is the optimal way that we would know God. We're knowing God through God becoming a human being where we can identify better with him and he with us, and we can actually have a better relationship. God is, in a sense, saying, I'm not going to settle for a second-class relationship have to go through the way that's going to actually work and build a real relationship. So we have good reason to expect that God would become a human being. We have some specific reasons to believe that Jesus is the only viable candidate for God becoming a human being. And there's some dramatic implications to Jesus being a human and being God. So is Jesus God? I think we have reason to believe that unlike my being European royalty, The answer is yes. Let's pray. God, thank you for creating a world and then wanting to enter it. Thank you for wanting to identify with us, wanting to know us and love us. 
in sending your son to become a human being and live and be connected to us forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.